0: One, two, three. But where is the fourth? Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. And you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 27 Plato's Timaeus. In our introductory episode to Plato, we made the claim, rather irresponsibly, that among the works of the most important thinker of the Western world, Plato, a particular dialogue stands out as perhaps the single most important work ever written in the Western tradition, or at least the Western esoteric tradition. This is Plato's dialogue, Timaeus. The Timaeus may not literally be the single most important work ever written in the West, and the Bible will certainly give it a run for its money. But as this episode of the podcast will show, the Timaeus is a work of thoroughly pervasive influence on Western culture. Indeed, when early Christian fathers were attempting to build a theology from the materials they found in their scriptures they turned, more often than not, to the Timaeus for guidance. And sometimes they were unaware that this is what they were doing. The influence of this dialogue was so great in late antiquity that we can speak of a diffusion of its ideas throughout Greco-Roman culture at large, often among people who had never read it and perhaps knew little of Plato or his works. The Timaeus sort of ripples out through time and culture, and its ideas, while they're transformed in the process, remain recognizably Plato's. And it seems to have had a particular resonance with esoteric thinkers. As we shall see, elements of the Timaeus find their way into many heretical or otherwise unorthodox, or even properly esoteric, approaches to Abrahamic religion. Philo of Alexandria, in the first century, uses the Timaeus as a central piece of his esoteric fusion of Platonist thought and Judaism. The movements known as Gnostic, are in some ways the result of what happens when Jewish scriptures collide with the Timaeus in late antique contexts. Plato's creation myth is an absolutely central text for these movements. And the Demiurge, the figure who's perhaps the key linking element across Gnostic movements, has his origin in the Timaeus. The Islamic thinker Ar-Razi will take elements traceable back to the Timaeus to argue for eternally existing realities which were present before the creation including a rather awkward kind of evil world soul. So the Timaeus has presented a challenge to the totally ex nihilo sort of Abrahamic creation stories, but it's also been integrated again and again into the mainstream Abrahamic faiths. The so-called School of Chartres, to just take one example, a group of important medieval Christian doctors constructed a philosophic account of creation which attempted to save the Timaeus for Christianity. But all of this is just to whet your appetite. As we shall see in the course of the podcast, the Timaeus presents multiple challenges to Abrahamic scriptural accounts, to which esoteric thinkers of all ages seem to keep going back, almost as though Plato's dialogue is the unofficial go-to alternate version of the creation story for those who are, for whatever reason, unsatisfied with the mainstream understanding, while also seemingly being an irresistible account for orthodox thinkers. Who are trying to put the story of creation onto a philosophic footing? People just can't resist the Timaeus. In this episode, we'll take a first look at this dialogue. We want to try to situate it within Plato's work as a whole and discuss its later reception history a little bit, although we won't invest too much time here because the podcast itself will, in many ways, be a tracing of the afterlife of the Timaeus through later Western esoteric culture. But most importantly, we want to examine the key ideas presented in the dialogue. Let's start with the context among Plato's works. Plato's dialogues are preserved pretty much complete, but we have little primary evidence about what he wrote when. What is the order of the dialogues? This is the question. Scholars have spent a lot of time on this. There are plenty of hints here and there which we can kind of assemble, and then we can add to these hints stylometric analysis. This is the kind of number crunching of Plato's texts but it's not as much of an exact science as some of its proponents would like it to be. The basic way it works is, we start with some fairly certain knowledge. We're pretty sure, for example, that the Apology is among Plato's earliest works, if not the first. It probably is the first. Okay, we can also be pretty certain that the more didactic works, like the Republic and the Timaeus, are generally later. Now, Plato's style evolves over time, so we'll see him start to favor certain expressions in terms of phrase more as time goes on. Starting from a few baselines, like the early date of the Apology and the late date of the laws, say, we can analyze his style word for word and get some probabilistic picture of what might be early, middle, and late dialogues. Incidentally, scholars were doing this kind of analysis way before computers, so we must give respect to the classicists of yore and their incredible tenacity. Stylometry can be used alongside analysis of the ideas presented in the dialogues to get a reasonably likely picture of what was written when, at least in terms of early, middle and late, this trichotomy we've mentioned. A more fine-grained dating gets into individual, scholarly judgments and can't be regarded as provable, in my opinion, but I feel pretty confident about most of the consensus on the three main periods of Plato's work. So in this tripartite schema, we can say that the Timaeus is a late dialogue. The Laws is generally agreed to be Plato's last work, and Timaeus Critias may have been the second to last. So that's our rough dating. We're dealing with Plato at the end of his career, looking back on a lifetime's work. Oh, and as for the Critias, which we just mentioned, we'll return to it in a moment. We've said that the Timaeus was uniquely influential. This is mainly due to its powerful myths, which we'll get to, but also owes something to the accidents of textual transmission. In the Hellenistic and Imperial periods, Plato's dialogues circulated widely and were widely read. In this context, the Timaeus was probably in the top five most read dialogues. This is not a scientific statement, this is just a kind of general feeling you get. But the corpus as a whole, that's Plato's dialogues, continued to be actively worked with throughout antiquity. However, the Latin Platonist Calcidius, who may have been a Christian, made a Latin translation with commentary, of the first part of the Timaeus in about the year 321 CE. And this was extant in the Latin-speaking West right through the Dark Ages into the High Middle Ages. And so when, in the Renaissance, the rest of Plato was recovered in Florence and given a Latin translation by Marsilio Ficino, the Timaeus was the only dialogue with which the Latin Christian world had been familiar for centuries. So for the medieval Latin West, it's fair to say that the Timaeus was Plato. Along with little bits of data that could be gleaned from Cicero, Macrobius, and other Latin language philosophical writers. Thus, Timaeus has a seminal influence not only on the earliest theological writings of Christianity, but had an ongoing influence on Christian thought in both East and West, right through the Middle Ages. And this influence was often a kind of countercultural, for lack of a better term, influence. Not always, but often, as we shall see. So, that's a little bit about the reception history of the Timaeus. What is the Timaeus about? What happens in the Timaeus? What's all the fuss about? Here is my basic summary of the dialogue, and I'll be quoting H.D.P. Lee's 1965 Penguin translation throughout this episode for direct quotes. Socrates is the first speaker of the dialogue, and he opens with the pregnant line, one, two, three. But where, my dear Timaeus is the fourth of my guests of yesterday, who were to entertain me today. Now, beginning the dialogue with a series of numbers is no accident. As we shall see, the Timaeus is saturated with arithmetical and harmonic materials, and Plato is flagging this right at the beginning. We're going to be dealing with numbers. But from a dialogic standpoint, he's introducing three speakers, each of whom has an assigned task. He's also making a reference, quite deliberate it seems to me, to an absent someone, which I think points us toward esoteric materials later in the dialogue, but more on that later. Now, these three speakers are Critias, Timaeus, and Hermocrates. The absent speaker is never named. And what is their task? Socrates mentions that they'd all been gathered earlier discussing the ideal state. He's hearkening back to the middle dialogue, the Republic. And he gives a quick summary which shows that this is the case. He basically runs through the theory laid out in the Republic. Though in the summary, the philosopher-rulers of the Republic are strangely absent, which is the first, perhaps, significant absence in the Timaeus. But he would dearly love, he says, to hear how such an ideal state might function in reality, and in particular, how it might function in time of war. So Socrates wants to see the Republic's ideal state in action. Critias, one of the three interlocutors, volunteers to supply just such an account, And here things start to get weird, as they always do with Plato. Critias tells us that Athens herself provides the perfect example of the philosophic state in action, but not the Athens of Plato's day. This is the ancient antediluvian Athens, which was, it turns out, a virtuous polity organized along republic-esque lines, and which engaged in a war with a land called, wait for it, Atlantis. So, Critias then summarizes the myth of Atlantis. We'll return to the Atlantis myth in the next episode, with a dedicated treatment. There's no need to emphasize here that the Atlantis story has gone on to have rather a lasting presence in the thought of esotericists of modern times. But Critias says he doesn't want to give the whole story then and there. First, in one of Plato's weird swerves, Critias suggests that Timaeus give an account of the creation of the universe itself since he is the most skilled of the three in astronomy. Socrates agrees to this. First, Timaeus will give his account of the origins of everything, and then Critias will tell his Atlantis story in all its glorious detail. So, having been introduced to the problem of the ideal state in action, and having been given a tantalizing summary of Critias's tale of Atlantis, which he tells us is ancient wisdom preserved by Egyptian priests, passed on to Solon, and then by Solon to Critias' own family, we then proceed to completely ignore the problem of the ideal state for the remainder of the Timaeus. What we do get instead is the story told by the character Timaeus of how the universe was created, and it's a doozy of a story. But before we get into this myth, a few points. Who is this guy Timaeus, and what about the continuation of Critias' Atlantis tale? Well, Timaeus of Locri is, as far as we can tell, Plato's invention. But we should note that there would arise an opinion in antiquity that he was in fact a Pythagorean philosopher, and predictably, we have a text which circulated under the name Timaeus. This is the On the Nature of the Cosmos and on the Soul, written sometime perhaps in the first century BCE or CE. Take your pick. This was an updated paraphrase and explication of the cosmological myth in Plato's Timaeus, written in the Doric dialect, so fitting for a supposed author from Locri, which is a Dorian city, and was widely read by Platonists in later antiquity. So Timaeus of Locri seems to be one of those wonderful invented esoteric figures who take on a life of their own and go on to greater things than were ever intended by their creators. And so, when ancient biographers like Iamblichus talk about Plato's Pythagoreanism, they sometimes even have Plato traveling to Italy to study with Timaeus of Locri, whom he actually invented, most likely. As for Critias's full account of Atlantis, this appears in the next dialogue, the unfinished dialogue Critias, to which we alluded earlier, In fact, although this is somewhat uncertain, it seems that Plato was planning a trilogy of Timaeus, Critias, and Hermocrates, so one dialogue for each of the interlocutors with Socrates. Though what Hermocrates was to have spoken about remains cause for much speculation, we don't get a lot of Hermocrates, he's just there in the background. So the Critias, the next dialogue in the sequence, gives us the Atlantis myth in full, but then breaks off in mid-sentence for some unknown reason. Tune in next episode for more on that. Now, what about Timaeus' myth? What does Timaeus go on to narrate after so much build-up, none of which seems to be a particularly logical introduction to a cosmological myth of the type that he delivers? Well, firstly, we've been talking about a myth here. What, what do we mean by this term? When Plato slips into mythos mode, as opposed to logos mode, he's doing some very complex things and much ink has flown in the quest to define exactly what a Platonic myth is. Mythos in Greek is story, most generally. It's a narrative. And logos, as we've seen in this podcast, can have a bewilderingly huge range of meanings. But the point for our purposes is that with logos, Plato is arguing for a position. Or rather, his characters are so arguing. While with a mythos, a character is delivering a story, first and foremost. So, as Timaeus tells us, this is a likely story. Plato seems aware that these mythoi do not carry the same sort of weight of persuasion as his strenuously argued logical passages, but at the same time he clearly values the mythoi highly and uses them often. And the Platonic mythoi, it must be said, are underrepresented in the analytical study of Plato. So, In this podcast, we're going to spend an extra amount of time talking about his myths because they're so fascinating, and Plato clearly intends them to have a very serious philosophical purpose. So, what is Timaeus' likely story? The brief version is as follows Timaeus tells us that the universe we see and live in, the world of becoming, of Genesis, where things change and perish and transform, this world had a beginning, a craftsman god fashioned it. Now this is the demiurgos, the demiurge, literally a craftsman. The demiurge made the best world possible, fashioning the cosmos based on a perfect model or blueprint, that of the unchanging world of forms. He didn't create the universe from nothing, exactly. There were the forms already existing from eternity. And there was also some kind of very difficult to specify something or other. Plato calls this either the receptacle, or sometimes he calls it space, which is like a perfectly featureless writing tablet, which can receive any impression. Receiving the impressions of the forms, it allows for bodies and individual things to come into being. So the exact nature of the receptacle has been argued over a lot, and Plato himself or rather Plato's Timaeus talks about it as extremely difficult to conceive of and define, but it functions as some kind of matter which gives shape, or body, to the forms. So the Demiurge is not an omnipotent ex nihilo sort of creator. He has this matter, or space, or receptacle, or whatever, which he has to work with, and it's kind of a recalcitrant, chaotic mess. So he, in bringing rational order to it based on the forms, will not be able to produce an absolute copy of the world of forms, but only the best copy possible under the circumstances. Plato also introduces something called the errant cause, which is a mysterious element of reality which just seems to be a kind of cosmic-level embodiment of the principle that things don't always go to plan, which also means that things aren't going to be a perfect exact representation of the world of forms. So we have a good, wise, rational craftsman making the best possible cosmos based on the perfect archetypal pattern of the forms, but stuck with slightly less than ideal materials to work with, which is why our world is not perfect and why we have change and why we have decay and so on and so forth. Now, what are the forms? We've mentioned them before in the podcast, but aware as we are that many of our listeners do not share our perverse love for all things platonic, we should try to give a very quick introduction here. Avid listeners will recall that in our introduction to Plato, we mentioned that the famous Platonic Theory of Forms is never actually found in the dialogues of Plato, but that if you take lots of different passages from different dialogues, you can construct a Theory of Forms for yourself. And this is just what the Platonists did. This is all true. So let's construct a Theory of Forms for ourselves, briefly, just to give an idea of what the Demiurge is basing his cosmos on. The idea is that there are eternal truths, Plato calls these ideas, idei, actually, and they're sometimes translated by the English word idea, but this can be misleading because they're absolutely nothing like ideas in the normal sense. So the term forms tends to be the preferred one. We can say about these idei, that they are eternal and immaterial. Plato's very consistent on that, and that they cannot be detected by the senses. You can't see them or touch them or smell them. But reason leads us to realize that they must exist, and that they are in fact the ultimate reality, the more real reality, which somehow lies behind the particular things which our senses can grasp. Now, Plato's Socrates gives a lot of reasons for thinking this. It's not just a fanciful idea, as I might be giving the impression it is. It makes possible true knowledge, it makes language possible, and it also makes possible the existence of impermanent things with some kind of unchanging essence. So the fact that a triangle will always remain a triangle, or more aptly, the fact that a horse will always be a horse, at least until it dies and decomposes, is due to the forms existing. But we can't really, unfortunately, afford to get into the reasons why Socrates argues for this now. Do check it out, and don't think that the summary I'm giving here exhausts Plato's reasoning on the subject of forms, because it gets pretty deep. Now, if there are many things which are good, they must have some goodness, or somehow participate in goodness. This for Plato Socrates in the Republic, to take one instance, is because they all participate in some way in the form of the good, which is a pure, stable, and eternal goodness in itself. Goodness without accidental extras, just plain goodness in its purest form. It's not an object, it's not made of anything but it is the object of a particular type of thought, noesis, which grasps the forms directly. This is all part of a discussion in the Republic of different types of cognition, with noesis at the top of the hierarchy as the form of thinking or cognition which attains to true and certain knowledge rather than opinion, since it deals directly with realities, the forms. So when we speak of the world of forms, as Plato sometimes does, we're talking about the immaterial reality, which makes this reality possible. But it isn't exactly a separate world, since it's intimately present in some way in this world, the world of becoming. In fact, the theory of the receptacle in the Timaeus gives a kind of mechanism for how this might work. The receptacle is a sort of nothingness, which receives forms and gives them, well, form. That's form in the usual sense of the term. It fleshes them out and makes them bodily and temporal maybe like a blank movie screen without which the images in the movie would be invisible, although the movie would still exist nonetheless. Obviously, that's my simile, not Plato's. So that is a super quick and very unsatisfactory introduction to Plato's most influential doctrine, which never quite appears as a doctrine in Plato. But in the Timaeus, and this is the important point here, the theory of forms is taken as a given. Timaeus doesn't argue for it he assumes the existence of the world of forms, only offering a mechanism whereby it serves as a blueprint for the cosmos, which the demiurge creates. Interested parties are referred to dialogues like the Fido, the Phaedrus, the Republic, the Symposium, and others, and to the many fine works of secondary literature which attempt to explain this notable theory of forms. Let's pause here for another moment and note that this demiurge, this personified rational creator deity, is the first such that we find in Greek thought. In the Near East, creator deities were old hat, but in our earlier Greek sources, Hesiod, the Orphic poems, the pre-Socratics, we always seem to see a more developmental model of creation, which to be sure, may involve many gods and goddesses, but is generally patterned on a growth or evolutionary model, rather than the idea of conscious rational planning implied by the craftsman figure. So if you have ever lain awake at night wondering at what precise point we might say that the seeds of monotheism were planted in the West, that is monotheism understood not simply as a one god-only rule, but as the positing of a rational agent deity who creates the whole universe, this is it. Plato's Timaeus just invented God. Of course, We're still in Greek territory. The Demiurge has a pre-existing order, which he didn't create. And he sort of has to wrangle it. This is the forms and the receptacle. But we're still looking at a major milestone in Western thought here, for better or worse. We suddenly have a creator god who plans and then makes the cosmos. The Demiurge's first action is to create the astronomical cosmos. So he creates soul an eternal substance with an interior structure based in perfect harmonic ratios, to which we shall have to return in another episode. And then he cuts up the soul like a tailor cutting cloth. So soul here is somehow seen as a kind of two-dimensional plane of some sort. And taking different flat strips of it, he wraps them into circles and then sets the heavenly bodies in motion along the circular strips. If you imagine an old-fashioned armillary sphere here, you might get some idea of what Plato is envisioning. So the planets and fixed stars are all created by the Demiurge and set in motion, and that's when time begins, intimately associated with its own measurement, so that time somehow is the movement of the heavenly bodies, which is the movement of soul. This idea that time is the life of soul will return in the later Platonists, and The stars are created, and these are gods. They're gods with bodies, and they're created, but they're gods. And best of all, the whole thing, the cosmos and everything in it, is a single vast living creature. We should pause here again, noting that Plato's account here is the first surviving attempt in Western literature to give a mathematically modeled theory of astronomy, something that we've seen was developing in the Near East for well on a thousand years already but was just beginning to creep into the Greek world. Plato is giving an explanation with these different strips of soul for both the movements of the fixed stars and the perceived retrograde motion of the planets. It is also, at the same time, the first account of what we might call the astrological approach to the heavens, which views the stars as divine powers. Up till now, the Greeks, as far as we can tell, viewed the stars as pretty lights in the sky or maybe as the tears of some primordial goddess or something like that, but never as divine agents of change. All this would now change. And the Timaeus set up the West for a wholesale embracing of the idea of the stars as divine causes. In fact, the astral gods in the Timaeus are the gods. Athena, Zeus, and their traditional friends don't really get much of a look in. The gods, as far as we're concerned, are the stars and planets. We should note here as well that this is the first Western Big Bang theory. All the Greek accounts we have up till Plato have the cosmos indeed emerging at a given point, but there's always an eternal period of non-cosmic disorder out of which it emerges. Nothing really begins in an absolute sense. Plato's Timaeus, on the other hand, specifically tells us that time begins at this point, this point of the creation of the heavens. Whatever came before this act of creation And there were at least the demiurge, the receptacle, and the forms, however all of it worked. It was atemporal. There was no time. So there you have the first creation of time. The clock starts, the world exists, where previously there had been nothing, or at least there had been no duration. This is another important first for Plato, the importance of which cannot be overestimated. And as a side note, if the modern Big Bangists are right, then this is a case where Plato actually hit the nail on the head, against all odds. Since both the Greek tradition which came before him, and his student Aristotle, and almost all the Platonists, argued that the world must be eternal, and time couldn't possibly have a beginning. It does seem self-contradictory that time would have a beginning, the more you think about it. And interestingly, in modern times, from the Enlightenment until the mid-20th century, One mark of a hard-nosed rationalist materialist was that you rejected the religious nonsense of the creation stories and maintained that the universe always had existed. But then the physicists came to the surprising platonic conclusion that the universe really did have a beginning. Go figure. Plato's Timaeus then goes on, finally, to tell us about the four elements, fire, air, water, and earth, our old friends from Empedocles. But these are not the elements as we know them. They're composed of some fundamental particles, but these are not the atoms, as the Greek world knew them from the works of the atomists Leucippus and Democritus. These are minute triangles, which can be used to construct four of the five so-called platonic solids. And each element has as its basic particle one of the platonic solids. This is in fact the first appearance of the so-called platonic solids. That's why they're called the platonic solids. These are the five and only five polyhedra whose faces are all the same shape, whose edges are all identical, and whose vertices will map perfectly onto a sphere. So this is another first for Timaeus, although we have a lot of reason to believe the solids had been long known about and experimented with. So the element of Earth is made up of tiny cubes, fire of tiny tetrahedrons, air of tiny octahedrons, and water of tiny icosahedrons all of which can be further reduced to constituent triangles that make up their faces. Scalar triangles in the cases of fire, water, and air, and isosceles triangles in the case of earth, which makes earth the odd one out, and it's not mutually convertible with the other three for that reason. As for the dodecahedron, the final platonic solid, it is used by the demiurge in constructing the heavens, but Plato indulges here in a flagrant piece of public esotericism. He discusses the construction of the other four solids in great detail, getting super geometric, and we're gonna to have to return to this geometric passage because it's very, very interesting. And then he passes over the construction of the Dodecahedron with the remark, quote, there still remained a fifth construction, which the god used for arranging the constellations of the whole heaven. End of quote. And that's it. He tells us no more, he doesn't even name the Dodecahedron but he gives some cryptic references to the idea that there might be five worlds instead of one. I should mention here that the dodecahedron has a five-sided face. Now that we've seen the idea that Plato was a Pythagorean is not one with much meaning unless you specifically say what you mean by that, but this is one of those passages which make it clear exactly why everyone thought he was a Pythagorean. He's putting forward some kind of weird esoteric geometric ontology displaying that more is going on than he's willing to explain, and then changing the subject. Surely that is what a member of a secretive brotherhood concerned with the metaphysics of geometry and number would do. We shall clearly have to return to this passage, as well as to the ratios of the soul, which we alluded to earlier. So, the demiurge, having created the heavens out of harmonic soul stuff, and in some mysterious way, the dodecahedron, and the four elements out of tiny triangles, he tasks the created star gods with creating the remaining needful things, basically living things and mankind. So here we have yet another first. Plato's Demiurge's act of delegation is a formative example of the creation of a cosmic hierarchy, one of the structures of thought which many scholars, such as Antoine Febvre, see as a characteristic or even definitional aspect of Western esotericism. In other words, the Demiurge doesn't simply create everything himself, like the mainstream Christian creator god. He creates the highest powers, the planetary gods and the world soul, and these in turn create lower powers and so on down the chain of being. We have a cosmic hierarchy, and this is a very influential cosmic hierarchy indeed. So the created astral gods create humankind. The human head has a microcosmic arrangement of strips of soul inside it, just like the Heavenly Sphere. And all the limbs and organs are added basically so that the head can get around and be protected. We humans are basically heads, which are microcosms of the celestial cosmos, plus appendages for allowing the head to survive. As is sometimes the case, Plato's myth here seems to be a weird juxtaposition of the childlike and the sublime. Now the rest of the dialogue is largely concerned with humans. There's a lot of discussion of how the human being's sensory apparatus works based on the physics laid out so far with the four elements and so on. Theories about the functioning of different organs and why the gods planned them the way they did. Ideas about disease and in general, a whole sort of proto-medical theory. And that, says Timaeus, is how the best of possible worlds came into being. Once again... Plato got there first. Here we have the idea that the human being is quite literally the microcosmic mirror of the heavens. This idea would resonate strongly with later Platonists, although they tended to ignore the stuff about the head having orbits inside it like an armillary sphere, and they would sort of dematerialize the whole thing. And especially once astral influences became an established part of mainstream physics and medicine, as they did in late antiquity, the human microcosm and its intimate relationship to the cosmos at large would rule man's imagination for centuries. Actually, this theoretical complex of macrocosm-microcosm can't really even be called esoteric, except in retrospect after it's been sort of sidelined and debunked by the new science of the 17th century. Everything from metallurgy to medicine was theoretically conceived by the majority of thinkers from antiquity right up until the Enlightenment in terms of human-cosmic resonances and macro-microcosmic alignments. And again, this dialogue of Plato's is where we see the earliest reference to the idea, at least in such a blatant and such an astrally-oriented form. So as we move forward through the history of Western esotericism and study the different ways in which astral influences and macrocosm-microcosm were conceived We must always keep very much present in our thought the dialogue, the Timaeus, and the formative influence it had on this incredibly influential way of thinking about the world. So there we have a brief introduction to Plato's Timaeus. While we hope to have pointed out some key points which make this dialogue such an essential milestone in Western esoteric thought, we haven't really done justice to some of the most interesting aspects of the texts, like the harmonic and geometric material, with hints of overt esotericism and the theory of soul as a kind of universal cloth, which is cut up and formed into the astral realms. So we'll return to this great work in later episodes. But first, we promised a discussion of the Atlantis myth of the Timaeus Critias, and here at the Schwepp we like to keep our promises. So join us next time as we discuss Plato's Atlantis with Professor Christopher Gill, and until then, be like the construction of the Dodecahedron, whose five-sided faces contain inherent golden mean proportions which must, of course, be kept from the knowledge of the uninitiated, and stay esoteric.